Today's episode of Opera Talk is going to be a little bit different, simply because our subject takes us a bit further from the standard repertoire, although, as far as I'm concerned, this opera should be considered standard repertoire. It's the work that announced to the 20th century that opera was still, after Wagner, a viable art form, worthy of treating the great human themes. It doesn't give itself over to analysis very easily. It reaches out, grabs you, and demands your attention. You can't be indifferent to either the story or its music. In fact, it's a perfect melding of theater and music, and because of this, it needs special attention. So today's program is going to be presented as an ongoing conversation between myself and Karen Keltner, the resident conductor of San Diego Opera, who will be conducting San Diego's production of this wonderful work. So what's this opera that demands special attention from us and from the audience? Alban Berg's Wozzeck, an opera with a brutal story, but a score of consummate beauty. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. This period of history I find unbelievably fascinating. The, the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century in Vienna, so much is going on there artistically and musically and scientifically and politically. Isn't it? A, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's fermenting. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it is amazing and it's highly, highly volatile, I think, uh, from many aspects. Well, all of the seeds for the beginning of World War I are there. Are there. T a, a virulently anti-Semitic Viennese society at yes. the time. And the crumbling of, of the Habsburg Empire. And the, and, and, and the cultural surroundings of that time are yeah. starting to erode also. Exactly. Yes. And musically, what's happening about this time? Let's see. Uh, Lehar as disappearing, falling out of favor. Mahler is coming well into favor and is it greatly admired. Um, As the conductor and, I guess, director of the Vienna State yes, Opera. Yes, indeed. In fact, I think he was first known, unlike today, more as the conductor than the, as the composer. So he was very forward-looking in both presenting his own works and, of course, in bringing this whole new aspect of, of, of uh, interest and curiosity to the musical world. And in art, of course, you've got Gustav Klimt, uh, Egon Schiele, uh, Kokoschka, and in, in philosophy, Wittgenstein. I mean, the Stefan Zweig. Yes, because Wozzeck is really not that old no. as a piece. But when you think that it comes from that ferment, and, and I think maybe the most important thing scientifically, and so much of what was going on with Mahler and the Expressionist movement and the composers that we're going to be talking about uh, in a moment, comes, I think, from what Sigmund Freud, Freud was, doing was discovering and, and what he was doing. Mahler had a session with Freud. Uh, I think Schoenberg did as well. He probably did. Uh, probably folks course, thought he should have had more. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> so. Uh, and, you know, that, that whole atmosphere must have been... Exciting. Yeah. More exciting than we can probably even conceive of. Yeah. Of course, there were no emails. There were no TVs. People spoke. They had conversations. Well, they all met in the, they, in the cafes. Exactly. It was cafe society. Exactly. You know, and, and if... They, ideas if, were exchanged... Ardently and with great fervor, I, 
I sometimes think we're missing a great deal of social interaction in this so-called progressive state yeah, we are in exactly. today. Exactly. And, and uh, just to underline that, the fact is all of these people knew each other and knew each other very well. Uh, Schoenberg, of course, who was the father of the so-called atonal movement or 12-tone movement, was the teacher of Alban Berg and, Ver Ver and Webern. Mm -hmm. uh, and they all knew and loved Mahler. One of the most wonderful stories that I know about Berg was when he was a student going about into the... Stealing. Going into the green room yes. at the Vienna State Opera. I read Opera that with some degree of... <laughs> and stealing the baton after performance. I can imagine that. I was given the baton of one of my teachers, uh, and it's, it's something that's very, very important. But I think his chutzpah in stealing that was also quite impressive. <laughs> I, I imagine Mahler winked. I think so. So let's focus on Berg himself um, from a relatively well-to-do Viennese family, a sickly boy and, and sickly most of his life, turns to music rather late. Yes, yes. And I think it's his brother that suggests to him, well, this, there's this local composer. Why don't you, you go study go with him? Yeah, Schoenberg <laughs> had just, in fact, set up a private studio, and I guess Berg went to him. And even though Berg was largely self-taught, I understand, Schoenberg readily accepted him. Yeah. Well, he had, I guess he had written a few songs up to this well, point I, yeah. uh, as a teenager, but it, it wasn't like, I, mean, I hadn't picked up from any of the biographies that it was like he had any formal, uh, formal training in piano even no. or, or anything like that, that no. it just was something that he was driven to do because he loved music so much. Yes. Things like that happened. I remember seeing a conductor and knowing I had to conduct. <laughs> I mean, I certainly don't have the compositional gifts at all that, that Berg did, but I found that refreshing, yeah. that something had been germinating in him, obviously, for a very long time exactly. and found its at least door to fruition with these studies with Schoenberg. And so he was a, a classmate, if you will, in the same studio with Anton von Webern. And the three of them create what we call this Viennese Trinity. Yes. They're the new, the new Viennese school or new Viennese Trinity. Uh, and for my money, Berg's compositions, I think, go further. Yeah, and, and certainly are the best. I, I mean, they, think they speak to us more directly, don't you? Emotionally, they yeah. do. To me, they do certainly. me. So, yeah. I guess, and we haven't spoken of this before, but yeah. I find Webern much more antiseptic. Schoenberg almost sterile at times. I shouldn't say that, but that's just my gut reaction. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously Berg, whom we've discovered we both love for many various aspects of his musical makeup. Well, I think also part of, part of that is that Berg didn't completely swallow the 12-tone no. serial system well, totally. I mean, that, that he, didn't, he didn't use it slavishly as I think Schoenberg, the inventor of it, right. and Webern did. But isn't it true, and isn't it true, that that when he, Berg, was writing um, Wozzeck, that the 12-tone system had not been fully even formulated. Exactly. So he was not bound, except, and I also get the feeling that Berg knew his, and wanted to follow his own way enough that even had it been formulated in a formal sense, I think Berg would have done what he did. Yeah. 
And I think probably from that stems what I believe is the somewhat jealous reaction of Schoenberg toward Baird. Yeah, that was a complicated relationship. Well, teacher-students are sometimes. <laughs> Don't we both agree? Yeah, I mean, I've had yeah. some. I'm sure you have, too. The opera's based on a play by Georg Buchner, who only lived to his early 20s. I mean, he did Yeah, uh, very, very young. And this was in the 1830s or 40s. I mean, it's very early in the 19th century. For someone to be writing a play... Of that nature. That's, ...that's this intense and just about the brutality of mankind and about society towards the individual. What's interesting is that it is based on a real event. Episode, there there was this character whose name actually was Wojcik. Uh, and we had a problem of transcribing, didn't yes, we? Yes, uh, uh, Mr. Herr Buchner's handwriting was not very clear, and so a late 19th century um, uh, translator of his works wrote W-O-Z-Z instead of the W-O-Y-Z. But it was a famous case um, in, in terms of uh, German jurisprudence, because it was one of the first times, maybe the first time, that uh, the defense attorney tried a the... A clinical... Well, there was a clinical history of, of this character and wondering whether he was mentally deficient yes. uh, or insane at the time of the murder. And, and that this was, was the... This was very unusual at the time. But the play is incredibly powerful. It's, it's these 20 or 22 scenes, very all very, very short, just telling this simple story about this poor soldier, yes. Franz, who has a common-law wife and, a, and an illegitimate child, and how everyone in his uh, circle makes fun of him, derides him, uh, leads him on, uh, they play pranks on him. I mean, it, they're just really wicked to this poor man. Yes, yes. And I think the playwright... Uh, argued or felt, at least from what I've read, that it was impossible, and he wanted to show this, it was impossible to know what went on in the mind, in the mind of, of a the, person yeah. suffering all of this, even though the courts in this real case had attempted to project what was thought to have been going on. Right. And I think that was one of the premises of the play, was it not? Yeah. That to show the interior torment and, and, and tearing down of this individual. Yeah, exactly. And now the, the play differs from the real events in that the poor Franz Wojcik, who was the real person right. that killed his common-law wife, was executed. I mean, the, the, the insanity defense did not work for him. Well, but uh, Buchner changes it in the play, uh, which, is dies, exactly right? like, which is exactly like the, the opera, opera, that he comes back and murders Marie, exactly. his uh, uh, his common-law wife and then commit suicide in the same pond that he drowns her in. Oh, I know. It's, it's an um, unbelievably tragic story and so compact. I think that's the thing that... The succinctness of yeah, it, yes. The, and really the opera doesn't... also. Even these minute, they feel minute to me except when I'm studying the score, <laughs> uh, scenes that are just so compact and, and, and intense and gone. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's a part of the genius of the piece is that Berg, so impressed with the play, didn't tinker with the language at all. The play, the opera is just 
15 scenes. It's shorter than the original play, but the but language intact. is yeah, the language is almost exactly the same. I he, he changed very very few a little word here and a little word there. Uh, besides of course the name which by the time he discovered that the original name was Wojciech, he, he liked his He own had already written Wojciech, Wojciech, Wojciech all the way it through the piece. It would have changed the delivery would have of changed those. the music. Yes, yeah, exactly. So the opera, uh, Berg sees a performance of Buchner's play in 1914, just before the war, and is absolutely stunned, away, yeah. stunned by the piece yeah. uh, and, and can think of nothing else. I just imagine him being absolutely obsessed with the idea of writing an opera mm -hmm. based on this story at, at this point. And at this point, he's still studying with Schoenberg. Yes. I think. Uh, it's pre his service, military right, service. Right, that's the interesting thing. He starts he writing the piece. During his military And service. off he goes. I know. And wh what I find interesting is that there's, in, in the opera as well as in the play, there's this character, Herr Hauptmann, the, the captain. Yes. And he describes in, his, in a letter to his wife how. What he's experienced. What he's experiencing during the war in the trenches and this stupid captain that he has who is for the most often more often than not drunk wrong. And, and wrong, wrong. <laughs> yes no it's it's true he sees this play and then his own life experience uh, enlarges enlightens yeah, informs everything informs he's, yeah. what he's seen yeah. and is working on i think that's quite uh, it's remarkable and well you know and there were a number of composers at that time who were involved in the First World War on whatever side. Mm -hmm. But I think Berg, as I understand, is the only one who actually was in the trenches. I mean, he was right there. He was there. Fighting. And, and very much when we read his letters about the war, talking about what a waste of three years of my life. I wonder that the world doesn't wonder at this madness. Exactly. I mean, yeah. so the, the fatality and the and the emptiness of the play that he'd seen, I mean the message of the emptiness, is only then echoed in his life experience. The war, in other words, is a perfect context for the story, for the music. And for uh, this opera. And for this opera. Even further. So he comes back to Vienna mm -hmm. and continues writing, continues working on it. He presents scenes uh, here and there for friends, I'm sure for Schoenberg, right. his teacher. And, and for a little suite also. Webern. Didn't he a, put a, together a little a suite? A little suite when he was finished with it because right. he felt that that was the best way to introduce it to audiences was to have this orchestral suite that would be played in, in concerts. Um, had real difficulty getting it produced uh, and finally Alma, Alma Mahler, Mahler came <laughs> of all people rescue. comes to his And the rescue. dedication is still in both the piano vocal scores yeah. and the orchestral score, because, because she, she made it possible, she didn't funded she? The, yes. She funded the printing yes. of the first piano vocal yes. score. And then Eric Kleiber is introduced to this piece and decides... To champion it. This is the opera. If there were an opera that absolutely cries out to be performed, it's this one. And, and stakes his... He even says, I'll stake my professional career on getting this done and, and, and as I've read he almost did, almost did. lost his career. Because of course it's as, as you know well by now a tremendously complicated and difficult score to perform and at the time he demanded 15 orchestral rehearsals 
alone. And that was a shocker. And oh man, they were just, you know, you don't it's do just that. Not <laughs> it's just way over the top. And, and what I find fascinating is the, is the critical reception of Wozzeck at that first performance in Berlin. Uh, the fact that the audiences seemed to love it and, and the, the critics, critics absolutely hated it. And I just want to read a little bit of uh, just two sentences from one of the early critical <laughs> reviews. Um, as I was leaving the state opera, I had the sensation of having been not in a public theater, but in an insane asylum. I remember. On the stage, in the orchestra, in the stalls, plain madmen. For all these mass attacks and instrumental assaults have nothing to do with European music and musical evolution. Enough said. There you go. <laughs> Let's talk about the music. Of course, it's the glory of this opera, I yes, think. Certainly uh, it's a brilliant score. I've known it for many, many years. It's just been in my ear, but only for opera talk. I've been practicing some of these selections to get them ready. To, to, to get it from the score to the piano. Yeah, yes. and it's been a very interesting process. But I think the first thing to talk about is to allay people's fears about dissonance. Yes. What is dissonance? Do, and don't all composers use it? Always, always. We <laughs> Every just composer don't always from Monteverdi, exactly, all the way up. Berg stretches consonants, and sometimes in doing that, we have what people call dissonance. I mean, notes that don't sound like they belong together. But there's never an instance really where we go for very long in this score without some sort of a home key, a landing place. Yeah, a tonal center, exactly. if you will. I mean, I, I take real exception to people who call this an atonal work. Well, it isn't. It's it is not. not atonal. It's not at all. No. And as I was telling you earlier, there's so many passages where just my fingers are finding that it's a, it's it's a, so highly, it's a highly chromatic work, right. you know, using every single note in the scale. But it's not, I don't think, ever really Without tonality. atonal. No, yeah. I agree with you, Nick. Um, he builds, I mean, the other point is that Berg, I think, and, and you can comment, does all of the same things that every other traditional opera composer does. I mean, he, he paints atmosphere. Yes. He gives us a sonic environment for what's going on in the drama. There's even word painting and text painting, right? There's formal, there's formal uh, compositional forms also. He does what other people do. He just does it. Differently. Yeah, and with a different style. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you mentioned forms. I think it's it's interesting to note that this is a three-act opera with five scenes in each act, yes. and each scene encompasses what, what he would have called form. at that time a, a particular form, yes. or and in some cases an antique form, oh, yeah. old form. It's nothing new. No, no, no. But no. here, for instance, is a light motif. Let's talk, you know, a little bit about Wagner. Sure. Uh, the opera opens up, and and Wozzeck is shaving his captain. Herr Hauptmann, and the very beginning of the opera, we get the captain's leitmotif. It's this wonderful little figure that denotes the captain. And whenever we hear it, he's somewhere around. He's there. Exactly. And so in the uh, actually this is the second scene of the second act. It was the very first music that Berg wrote for That's right. I the opera. Now reading that. And yes. how interesting that at the top in the orchestra you've got 
the captain's theme. light motif. In a two-part invention against the doctor's theme. And you get this, and it's rather like right out of Bach, really. <laughs> two-part invention is basically a duet yeah. between two voices, yeah. and there you have so it. So it works. And he even uses the trick of augmentation, which Bach and all the great 18th century composers did in order to stretch their material. So augmentation simply means you take that motive and play it slowly. You draw it out. Just little tricks like that I find And when we hear that, that's done with just violins and mutes. I mean, we hear all these various things, but we're going to hear them in different in orchestrations. Color. It's yeah. In color, yes. Un we're doing them black and white. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Here's another fascinating section where he takes the doctor's theme and, and the captain's theme, and both of these guys are, are, are really tormenting poor Wozzeck as much as they possibly can, and he builds a double fugue using those two subjects. starts a whole new fugue. It's amazing stuff. And bravo. Oh, yeah, <laughs> By the way. well, some of the notes weren't quite true. Um, in that, we should probably say that between each of the scenes, there are these wonderful orchestral interludes. interludes. And the finest one, I think, is at the very end. Oh. When Baird so does glorious. a typical thing, again, he brings all of these themes back uh, in this Beautiful, beautiful orchestral uh, interlude. And here's where he brings back the captain's theme and he piles it on top of itself. Layering, layering, yeah, layering. Yeah, it's yes. an amazing moment. In different orchestral groups, we'll hear this. Right. It's, it's, it's ingenious. Wozzeck, of course, has a leitmotif. Yes, of course. And it comes from his aria, Wir arme Leute in German, because that's the way I know it. But in the English translation, Wretches like us. Wretches like us, yeah. And the tune is very simple. Wretches like us. That encompasses Wozzeck's whole place in life. Uh, that, you know, he's absolutely bereft of anything. anything. He anything. has nothing of his own. Completely yes, exactly. and utterly poor. Again, this recurs in that great interlude at the, end of the, at the end of the whole opera. We hear one final scream yes. of Wozzeck's leitmotif. In, now, what instruments are these when, when this is played? That vir arma uh, It is certainly the whole orchestra, but but the very highest instruments in the orchestra, I think, are playing just yes, blaring out his playing. tune. And this huge crescendo. And the climax of the whole piece. 
can't get much more tonal than that. You really can't. <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous music. I, I want to end just by playing another one of my favorite parts of that oh, yes, interlude. It's at the very beginning of that particular interlude uh, where he's killed his wife. He's come back and looked for the, you know, the, the knife. Traces of it, yes. And he's overwhelmed by guilt and drowns himself. And this is what we hear. an opera that really needs preparation before you come into the theater and see it, it's Wozzeck. It's really important, I think, to hear the piece, to get to know it, read the story. And there are lots of good books about the piece, but if you're a musician or even a mathematician, those books will be accessible to you. For the general reader, I would suggest going to a periodical like Opera Quarterly or read any of the scholarly articles that are in the CD booklets. Speaking of CDs, you have a wealth of possibilities here. There's some wonderful performances. First of all, the English translation that San Diego Opera is going to use has been recorded. It's on Chandos Records. Uh, the wonderful Wozzeck is baritone Andrew Shore. The Marie is Dame Josephine Barstow. This is a terrific recording. There's also a live recording from the Vienna State Opera from 1955, Carl Böhm conducting the Vienna Philharmonic, Walter Berry as Wozzeck. My favorite recording, the one that I cut my teeth on, is the one from CBS Classics. This is, again, Walter Berry as Wozzeck, Isabel Strauss as Marie, conducted by Pierre Boulez. It's a wonderful recording. And there is a recording conducted by Claudio Abado, with Hildegard Behrens as Marie and Franz Grundheber as Wozzeck. This, too, as the Vienna Philharmonic. This Noxos recording of Wozzeck is a wonderfully inexpensive alternative to the other recordings. It's in German. It has a full libretto. It's the complete opera recorded brilliantly with baritone Karl Falkmann as Wozzeck and the Marie of Katharina Dalaimann. I know this recording is one that, that you'll enjoy as well. Karen, thanks so much for being here and discussing one of my favorite works. You're Wozzeck very, very welcome, Nick. It's been a pleasure, and I'm happy to talk to you about Wozzeck. Thank you. And for our viewers, please uh, don't be afraid of Wozzeck. It's a great piece. There are plenty of recordings out there for you to get to know it. Give it a chance. I think you'll be blown away by this thing and, and perhaps be as smitten by it as we are. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera. Oh, no!
Not me, Marie, and not me. 